Well, what is it that strikes fear into your soul? You know, one thing I've learned over the years is that everyone is afraid of something. If you ever run into someone who says, oh, I'm not afraid of something, rest assured, they're just afraid of telling you what they're afraid of. Everyone is afraid of something. Maybe you're here this morning and you are afraid of the future. What does the future hold? Some people are deathly afraid of spiders. Yeah, I hear some of you. Some people are afraid of public speaking. Did you know that the number one fear in the Western world is the fear of public speaking? Some people have a a horrible fear of the dark. Not just children, but some adults have this, this fear of the dark. For me, I have my own fears. I'll share a few of them with you. I am afraid, I am deathly afraid of heights. I don't want to do heights. I remember it was Scott Meyer told me a couple of years ago about a, a hike that I should take my kids on to hike the Oyster Dome. And so we did that. You get to the top and look down. I don't want anything to do with that. My daughter will stand on the edge, just kind of look over, and I just, I, get, I break out into a cold sweat. So it's a fear of heights for me. Another thing that I'm deathly afraid of, don't, don't be pulling anything on this one. I'm afraid of snakes. No rubber snakes in my study, no rubber snakes under the chair, no real snakes under the chair, because I am deathly afraid of snakes. Well, this morning, I want to let you climb even deeper into the mind of your pastor, give you an inside look at something that literally scares me to death, and I am not joking. When people come over to the house and they say, guess what? We're going to put a puzzle together. Woohoo! That scares me to death. Because what you have here on the table are a thousand pieces. And for me, some of you know that I, I have the affliction that I was given by my grandfather through my mom of being colorblind. And so a colorblind person, to put a, a puzzle together, especially a puzzle of a thousand pieces, they all look the same. I remember as a child... I would try with all my might, and I just couldn't do it. And so if you see me ever trying, I'm not looking at the colors. I'm just kind of matching the pieces, going click, 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 click. And I'll, I'll try a hundred times, and I get one. It's like I just won the election. Look, I made the puzzle match. One piece. I just guessed. I had no idea what I was doing. As a colorblind person, I can tell you that putting together a puzzle, especially of this size, is like being on the receiving end of a Chinese water torture. It is just something that it is, is horrible for me. It intimidates me. It threatens me. Sometimes when we open our Bibles, you see where I'm going with this? You open to a particular passage and you get intimidated by that passage. The theology might be difficult to understand. There may be words that you've never heard before or words that you just can't put together. 
or the argument of the biblical author. In the case of Romans, Paul's argument might be weighty. It might be profound, and it's something that isn't quite coming together for you. The passage that we're going to look at today, at first glance, is very similar to dropping a thousand pieces on the table before you. It's overwhelming to even think about putting this puzzle together in this passage. And so what I'd like to do is to read the passage, and in the time that we have today, I want to help you put the pieces together. And the goal, of course, in the end is to see and to savor the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is to see the biblical text before us that will lead each of us to stand rejoicing before our Savior. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And as you make your way to Romans chapter 5, would you stand to your feet as we read together verses 15 to 17. This is God's word, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are eager to dive into your word, and while this passage seems like a, a, a massive puzzle before our very eyes, I pray that in the next several minutes that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within your people, that we would be able to put the pieces together, and by the time we conclude that we would see a beautiful portrait of your grace for your people. Help us by the power of your spirit to understand your word and to make direct application to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The title of the message this morning is Avalanche of Grace. We're so uh, thankful this morning to have a physical copy of your notes before you, and so I invite you to grab a copy of those notes and begin to sketch those in together. As we think about this topic, Avalanche of Grace, before we dive into these verses, I think it would be helpful to, to show you what the big picture is. And the big picture in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 11, we learn the importance of receiving peace with God, how? By faith and faith alone. There's nothing that we can do to, to earn peace favor with God. There's nothing we can do to earn that peace. Rather, it comes, as verse 1 tells us, through faith alone. In verses 12 to 14 that we looked at two weeks ago, we learn about the, the backdrop of original sin, which was the reason for the coming Christ. 
And as we begin to put the pieces of this passage together in verses 15 to 17, I want you to see that Paul's strategy is to show the contrast, this is key, the contrast between two men, between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in verses 12 to 14, Paul has already begun to show us this contrast between Adam and the one he says who is to come. And of course, that one who is to come is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As we contrast Adam and Christ, I want to make some some critical observations that will help us piece by piece to put this puzzle together. Now, I want you to think carefully about what we specifically learned two weeks ago in verses 12 to 14. And this is just a highlight. First, verse 12 tells us this, that sin came into the world, how? Through one man. Sin came into the world through Adam. Verse 12 also teaches that death, as a result, came through sin, and that sin spread, or rather death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. We labored to show that point that no one is exempt. I've never met a person, you've never met a person who is without sin. And then we learn that death reigned from Adam to Moses and drew forth some implications of that. And so as we think about verses 12, 13, and 14, you ask, what is the greatest need of sinners who have been utterly decimated by the sin virus? We understand that, right? That the sin virus has has swept into the world and it's not 210,000 or 215,000 or whatever it is now of, of the, all the tragic deaths in America as a result of COVID-19, but every single person who's ever existed has been decimated by this sin virus. And so what is the greatest need of these sinners? The greatest need is righteousness. The greatest need is that we as sinners need the righteousness of another. And that word another is capital A-N-O-T-H-E-R. We need the righteousness of God. And so my question I propose today is, what exactly does the gospel offer? Jason is always so faithful and, and, and kind to remind us in the songs that we sing and also the prayers that we offer. Jason's in particular, thank you for the gospel. And so what I want us to focus on today is what does the gospel offer? And what I see in verses 15 to 17 is three puzzle pieces. Not a thousand puzzle pieces, but when we put the three pieces together, when they lock together, we're going to see this beautiful portrait of God's grace. Now, just to make sure that I'm, I'm just not going crazy, how many of you, if you could be totally honest, if you read verses 15, 16, and 17, would say to yourself, that's like a thousand puzzle pieces placed on the table? How many of you would say that? It's like, what in the world is Paul's argument? Okay, four of you. Those of you who are not raising your hands, we're going to exchange places. You come up and explain it, right? Because I can tell you, to be honest, when, when I read this, and I've read it probably 
dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the course of my Christian life, this is a passage I've never preached. And so when I laid my eyes on it, my thought was, whoa, this is heavy. This is heavy. And it was the analogy of the puzzle that instantly popped into my mind. What does the gospel offer? Puzzle piece number one. Look at verse 15, if you would. For the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Here's the first puzzle piece. This puzzle piece tells us that the gospel that we are so thankful for, the gospel offers righteousness for whom? For the unrighteous. That's critical. The gospel offers righteousness for the unrighteous. And so Paul has labored with all his might to show the hopeless condition of every person apart from Christ. This morning, it is my, it is my solemn and sober duty to tell you this. If you are not yet a Christian, the Bible says that you are hopeless. Many of you have heard me repeat this common theme that I, I, am, I am so grieved and, 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 and worried and bothered that in contemporary evangelism, we have, we have left out the law. We have omitted the law. And as I met with a, a few friends a few days ago, we, we talked about this for a while. We all agreed that we need to present the law to the sinner. The sinner, you see, needs to understand that he or she is hopeless. But what does much contemporary evangelism do? It admits the law and it just says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And as a result, the, the response of people is, well, whoop de doo Really? The sinner needs to know, listen, you are in a hopeless state. The Word of God says this, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness righteousness do what? They suppress the truth. Romans 1.21 says the hopeless person does not honor God or give thanks to him. Rather, their thinking is futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. Romans 1.23 says that the unbeliever has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Romans 1.25 says you have exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1.29 says that unbelievers are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. You are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. And here's where it gets interesting. The unbeliever, the non-Christian, Scripture says, hates God. They hate God. They may believe in God, but they hate God. They are faithless heartless and ruthless. So says Romans 1, verse 31. If you are not a Christian today, the Bible says that, that deep down in your heart that you are a selfish person. 
As such, you do not obey the truth, but you obey unrighteousness. Therefore, Romans chapter 2, verse 8 says, there will be wrath and fury. Now that is how evangelism should take place. You tell the sinner you're hopeless. You have broken the law of God. Listen to what Romans chapter 3, verses 11 to 18 say about the person who is not yet a Christian. It says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or poisonous snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then Paul puts this, this huge statement before his readers. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That was me two seconds before I became a Christian. That was you two seconds before you became a Christian. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the Bible says that is where you are this very minute. Simply put, you are under a death sentence. If you are not a Christian, you are hopeless and you know it. And you know it. Have you ever seen, and I, I gave up watching the award shows a long time ago, especially the music shows. Drives me insane, right? Where you get a person who who sings about blasphemy, right? Makes millions of dollars and he stands up and, or she stands up and gets the award and says, I want to thank God. And I think, blah. My response is, which God? Which God are you talking about? But even for the person who gives lip service to God, if they are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, they know deep down in their heart of hearts that they are what? hopeless. Look around and gaze in horror at the countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are living without hope and without God, without the gospel. It shouldn't surprise anyone that in America especially, the business of psychiatry, that's a booming business, baby. Why? Because people are hopeless shouldn't surprise anyone that millions of people around the world are hooked on drugs and alcohol. shouldn't surprise us when we look into the eyes of a hopeless mob of people, people who are looting, who are burning cities all around America. Millions upon millions of people all around the world now are without hope and without God. Now please remember, it's important to remember that every unrighteous person is accountable before a holy God. I have to remember that when I see people rioting in the streets. Because my thought is, why is no one doing anything about this? Where are the police? Where is law enforcement? But I remember that every single one of those people are accountable before a holy God. A person might riot or loot or cheat on their taxes or disobey their parents or be unfaithful to their spouse or evade the law, but God's word reminds us we know what the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And so living without God is the most desperate and the the most hopeless place that a person can live in. It's a desperate position. It's a desperate place. But the gospel, the gospel offers righteousness for the unrighteous. Romans 5.15, once again, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Here's what Paul's doing in verse 15. He's, He's setting up a contrast. He's setting up a contrast, and the contrast is between the free gift and the trespass. The contrast is between the free gift and the trespass. Many died, Paul says, through one man's trespass. Who was that one man? Adam. Many died through Adam's trespass. We saw that in verses 12 to 14. When sin came into the world through Adam's trespass, Paul says, Death spread through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. No one's exempt, as we said. That is, each person who is born into this world is born under a death sentence. But now notice the contrast, and this is beautiful. While many died through one man's trespass, you see the words much more? That's worth highlighting in your Bible. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. I say, what is the grace of God? The grace of God is God's kindness or goodwill. And it's the kindness or goodwill that is totally undeserved by you and by me. That's why when people ask me, hey man, how you doing? I say, better than I deserve. I don't deserve God's grace. You don't deserve God's grace. The moment you say you deserve it, you don't understand it. Does that make sense? So by definition, grace is undeserved. I once read a definition of grace that went like this, quote, grace is God's making up the difference between the requirements of his righteous law and what we lack in meeting those requirements, close quote. You say, at first glance, hey, that doesn't sound half bad. The only problem is it's not true. I'm convinced that the operating assumption of many Christians is just that, that Grace is God's making up the difference of the requirements of his righteous law in what we lack, which suggests that we have something to offer. But nothing could be further from the truth. A man who had a a, a weighty, weighty influence in my life, and it goes all the way back to my university days. I remember his first book. Jerry Bridges wrote a book entitled The Pursuit of Holiness. Then he wrote a book called The Practice of Godliness. Then he wrote a book called Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts, and which is worth reading over and over and over again. But Jerry Bridges has had really a quite phenomenal influence in my life. And he said this. He said, grace 
is not a matter of God's making up the difference, but of God's providing all the cost of salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound much better and much more biblical? But tragically, thousands, even millions of people are trying to earn their way to heaven. The Bible says this, all we like sheep have what? We have gone astray. Everyone turned his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, we have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are fading like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. If that isn't bad enough, turning to the New Testament in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, and you have to ask, who is he talking about? We'll get there in greater detail. We'll get to Romans chapter 8. Who has the mind that is set on the flesh? One person, the unbeliever, the non-believer. His mind is set on the flesh. It is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. My question then is, why are so many people trying with all their might to please God apart from the saving grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ? In this verse, verse 15, Paul tells us that grace abounded. That's a word worth highlighting. Grace abounded, which means to be abundant. It means to be plentiful. It means to exist in in large quantities. And that's an understatement. Sam Storm says this, helpful. He says, the first and possibly most fundamental characteristic of divine grace is that it presupposes sin and guilt. Grace, Sam Storm says, has meaning only when men are seen as fallen, unworthy of salvation, and liable to eternal wrath. Grace, he says, does not contemplate sinners merely as undeserving, but ill-deserving. It is not simply that we do not deserve grace. He says this, we deserve hell. We deserve hell. And so the gospel offers what? It offers righteousness for the unrighteous. Righteousness for the unrighteous. As, as you consider this first puzzle piece, remember this important principle. Jerry Bridges helps us with this. He says, to the extent that you are clinging to any vestiges of self-righteousness, I want to stop right there and have you think for a moment. Are you clinging to any vestiges of self-righteousness? As I look around at local churches, I see this happening in droves. Is people are clinging to their own so-called self-righteousness. And so Bridges says, to the extent you're clinging to any vestiges of self-righteousness or are putting any confidence in your own spiritual attainments to that degree, you are not living by the grace of God in your life, close quote. And so have you received the free gift of salvation? Have you received the free gift of 
God's righteousness, and it's a gift that's only received by faith. I remember trying to share the gospel with someone several years ago, and it was basically, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And I'll, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, yeah, if it were only that easy. And I thought to myself, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Have you done that today? That leads us to the second puzzle piece, which is found in verse 16. Look at it with me. Paul says, and the the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Do you see why we are likening this sermon to a thousand-piece puzzle? You're like, if you're like me, you think, okay, I think I got verse 15 down. Okay, I got it, that the gospel grants righteousness to the unrighteous. Okay, I got that. Then you go to the next verse, and you went, oh, man, we're back to the puzzle again, right? This is puzzle piece number two, that the gospel offers right standing for the guilty. The gospel offers right standing for the guilty. I want to go immediately to the contrast once again. And the contrast here is that Adam's one trespass, you remember Romans 5, 12, Adam's one trespass brought death and condemnation for all who are in him. And we are all in him. But the contrast here is that Christ died once and brought justification to all who are in him. Tomorrow is a little bit of a controversial day for me because I will be posting a review of Rob Bell's new book. And one of the things that Rob Bell says in his most recent book, Everything is Spiritual, is this, and I quote, we are all in Christ. No, we are not. No, we are not. The only ones who are in Christ are those who have turned from their sins and trusted Christ, all the rest of the people are outside Christ, without hope and without God. And so the consequences for sin can never be overstated. As we look at verse 16, I want to highlight two words that show the magnitude of the consequences. The consequences that Paul speaks of can be summarized by two words in verse 16, the words judgment and condemnation. Judgment and condemnation. You see those there in verse 16. Judgment comes from the Greek uh, krima. It means this, a legal decision of judgment. It means authority to judge. It means a verdict. And it also means, this is interesting, it means condemnation. So the words are somewhat synonymous. Listen to how Paul uses the word judgment. Romans 2, 2. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you know that we live in a culture that essentially says this, God won't judge anyone? You know, I have read author after author after author who name the name of Christ, who say that God is so loving that he would never judge anyone. Well, we're going to have to go with the author 
or we're going to have to go with the author of the book. That is the book, the word of God. God says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Romans 2, 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Question mark. And then Paul continues in Romans 2, 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So what does every unbelieving person receive? He or she, man, woman, boy, girl, receives wrath and fury. But Paul continues. He says there's another word, another consequence, and that is condemnation, which means a legal decision of the guilty in a criminal case. Sorry. A criminal case. And so this is exactly what every person faces for his or her trespasses. You see it? Judgment and condemnation. In other words, apart from grace, apart from Christ, we are all guilty. We stand guilty before a holy God. I was meeting with a few men on Wednesday morning, and the subject of Jonathan Edwards came up. I'm pretty sure it's my fault. And I referred to the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached in the 18th century entitled, The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. It's a powerful sermon, and I I encourage you, I urge you to find it online and to read it. This is what Edwards says at one point in the sermon. He says, so that sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. Do you see Edward's argument? That our sin, the sin that we have committed willfully and rebelliously is deserving of an infinite punishment. And so every sinner needs to come face to face, I believe, with the weightiness of their sin and their desperate need of the Savior. That's why when you and I share the gospel, tell your friends and family members that they've broken God's holy law. The the Puritan Samuel Bolton used to say it like this. He said, first you wound them with the law, and then you pour on the balm of grace. Isn't that amazing? Tell the sinner that they've broken God's holy law when the sinner reaches the place where they say, oh, is there any hope for me? The answer is yes. And you pour on the balm of gospel grace. That's exactly what this second puzzle piece shows us, that the the puzzle piece of the gospel offers right standing for the guilty. But notice in verse 16, the word but. You all know by this point I love the word but right? The word but. Paul says, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And this is a review for most of us. We've seen that justification is that legal decision in a criminal case stating that an accused person is in fully accordance with the requirements of the law. That is the justified person is declared innocent. 
Justification means to set right. It means to vindicate. It means to declare that a person is righteous. R.C. Sproul says, Justification may be defined as that act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sight of a just and holy God. Now, this is a crucial distinction. It's one that I have labored to teach over the years, but it's one that I think we need to come back to again and again and again. Because if you ask many Christians, what does it mean when the scripture says you were justified? Many of those Christians will say it means that I am righteous. That is not what justification means. Because I will be the first to confess this morning, I am not righteous. Right? I know in my own heart what I was thinking behind that slow lady in the grocery, grocery line. I'm getting impatient, right? I know what's going on in my heart when I'm behind the slow driver on the way to church this morning. Hopefully it wasn't one of you. Right? I know my heart. Am I the only one? Someone raise your hand if you're with me. Yeah, we know our hearts. Are we righteous? The answer is no. But have we been declared righteous? That answer is a resounding yes. When God justifies a sinner, he declares that person righteous. Again, justification does not make a person righteous. Justification is a declaration of our new status before a holy God. Can you imagine? I am not righteous, but God looks at me and you, if you're a Christian, through the completed work of Christ, and what does he see? He sees pure righteousness. Not because of anything you did or anything you believed or anything you gave or anyone you served. He sees you as righteous because what Christ accomplished on your behalf. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in London, the doctor they called him, said, quote, justification makes no actual change in us. Rather, it is a declaration by God concerning us. And so Paul can say in Romans 8.1, I can't wait to get there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so instead of, remember the words, judgment and condemnation, every person who trusts in Christ is justified. Right? Instead of wrath, every person who trusts in Christ receives righteousness. Instead of retribution, I don't know about you, but I don't want retribution from a holy God. Instead of retribution from a holy God, every person who trusts in Christ receives right standing with a holy God. And so the question this morning is this, are you right with God? Are you right with God? And the only hope for guilty sinners is to receive that right standing with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for Christians, which is the vast majority of you, I believe, I want to urge you to grow in your love for the Savior. What does that mean? That means you learn more about justification. That means you never come to the place in your Christian life when you say, yeah, I've got that justification thing down pat. I'm moving on to something else. I received an email from Crossway Books this morning telling me about some new books coming out. I'm really excited about these books. But one of the books is a book 
on the attributes of God. You know how many books I've read on the attributes of God over the years? Over and over and over again. I thank God that I didn't say to myself when I requested the book this morning from Crossway, oh, I've, I've been there, done that. I've read about the attributes of God. I know about those things. No, more, give me more, right? Isn't that the mindset we should have? Digging deeper, growing stronger. Digging deeper, growing stronger. In that same email, I received word that John Piper has a new book coming out. And I don't know about any of you, but I've been thinking, like, what's Dr. Piper been doing? Like, he retired, and he just kind of, poof, he's, he's written one book in the last like, couple of years, I think. Well, the new one's coming out January the 6th, and it's 750 pages. And the title, you're not even going to believe this, Providence. Providence, that subject that many of you have interacted with me about over the last several weeks. So may I encourage you to go deeper and deeper into the grace of God. Jonathan Edwards says, the greater the mercy of God is, the more one should you, the, the, the more you should be engaged to love him and live to his glory. I want you to see the third puzzle piece that's in verse 17. I need to grab that third piece. Look at verse 17, if you would. Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man. Who is that one man? Someone yell it out. Okay, the puzzle's beginning to get clearer. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man. Who is that one man? Paul gives the answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Puzzle piece number three, the gospel offers overflowing grace for spiritual corpses. The gospel offers overflowing grace for spiritual corpses. This morning I listened to a, a message as I do on Sundays by Dr. Steve Lawson, and he made reference to Jesus approaching the tomb of Lazarus. You remember what Jesus said? right before Lazarus was raised from the dead? What did he say? What did he yell out? Lazarus, come forth! And Lawson cites another preacher who says that had he not addressed Lazarus in particular, what would have happened? Everyone in the graveyard would have come forth! Wouldn't that be cool? That is to show the, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death. The gospel offers overflowing grace for spiritual corpses. Here's the contrast quickly. Between the reign of death, which is owing to, as you just said, Adam's transgression with the reign of grace and the free gift of righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not miss the force of this word reign. It's an important word that means to reign as king. To reign as king. It means to reign as a monarch, to reign as a supreme ruler. Because of Adam's sin, death reigns, listen, as a monarch over every person. Because of Adam's sin, death reigns as a monarch over every person. And I want you to think, and I know I've referred to this several times over the last, oh, month or two. 
When you see the people in our city streets burning, stealing, looting, killing, beating people up, remember this. Because of Adam's sin, death reigns as a monarch over every person. The Bible says that sinners are dead in what? Their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. But Jesus says in John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Think Lazarus and think you if you're a Christian. Steve Lawson says, in this state, unregenerate people are completely unresponsive to the things of God. Just as a corpse cannot see, hear, or make choices, one who is spiritually dead cannot properly respond to the things of God. You've all heard me talk about if I ever teach a preaching class, if God were to ever open up that opportunity, day number one, we're going to the cemetery. Because these men that need to learn how to preach, you need to know that when you, when you preach to unconverted people, it's like going to the cemetery. And guess what? At the cemetery, no one's listening. How is it then that people hear the word of God? It's the power of the Holy Spirit that regenerates the, the recalcitrant, stony, sinful human heart. What the contrast is that Paul wants us to see here is indicated by the two words, much more, in verse 17. Those words indicate the contrast now between death and life. Here's Paul's argument in a nutshell. What we lost because of Adam was a monumental loss. Do we all agree on that one? What we lost in Adam was a monumental loss. Do you remember when God was in the garden with Adam? And he said, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden. You can eat any of the fruit, except, you see the one right over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat from that one, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely, you'll die. And so it was a monumental matter. It was a monumental loss when Adam sinned. But what we lost in Adam, Paul says in verse 17, we regain. This, this is just amazing. We regain in, much, in a much greater degree in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a, a pastor who was a, a big influence in my life as a university student when he was still alive even, Ray Stedman. He's a pastor that, uh, that many people don't know about in our day, and, and it's, it's a tragic thing because he was an, a, a mighty man of God. And he poses an illustration to help us to understand verse 17. He says this, just as a climber on a mountaintop can dislodge a pebble which rolls on and accumulates others until it begins an avalanche that will move the whole side of the mountain. You get the picture in your mind. One little pebble, right? It, it, it grows and accumulates, and now you have an avalanche. So, he says, Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden dislodged a pebble that has built into an avalanche of sin and death which has swept through the entire human race. But here's what Paul tells us, Stedman says. Jesus launched another avalanche of grace. And he can amply counteract all that Adam 
brought. You see, we receive the abundance of grace that Paul talks about in verse 17 and the free gift of righteousness. As a result, we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You remember that word reign again? I highlighted it when we spoke of death. Now we see again, it means to reign as a king or a monarch. For every person who is in Christ, that person reigns in life. Now, if any of you are dozing off at this point, like this is the time, right? This is the time to to really perk up and listen. Because every follower of Christ I've discovered is looking forward to heaven. Now watch this. We'll, we'll do a little test. How many of you, raise your left hand if you can't wait to go to heaven? It's a, yeah, even with, with, with sound effects. Thank you, Edith. Like we are, are eager to go to heaven. We can't wait to go to heaven. But until that time, I want you to remember this great reality. Where we are living right now on October the 11th, this is not the spiritual halfway house, right? We are not incarcerated in a prison on planet Earth. Rather, we reign in life now. Like, why are so many Christians waiting to go to heaven? We are waiting to go to heaven. You all raised your left hand if you're a follower of Jesus. But Paul says this, we reign now. Amen? So when you're facing a challenging season in your life, remember this. I reign now. I have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ, Paul says. When you're tempted, remember we reign now. When you are discouraged or defeated or depressed, we remember we reign now. When you feel like sin has the upper hand, someone help me, I'm getting a sore throat. Thank you. We reign now. And so when your life begins to unravel, you remember that we reign now. When life gets overwhelming, you remember we reign now. The reason I emphasize this is because so many Christians, I'm convinced, are stuck in this spiritual halfway house, and they're not living out the the fullness of their Christian experience. Remember what Jesus said? I have come so that you may have life and life to the full, life that is abundant life, not living in some kind of spiritual halfway house. You reign in life now because you have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ. We enjoy life even in the midst of death. Here's the truth point. The free gift of the gospel, and this is the question that we proposed when we began. The free gift of the gospel is this, that it offers righteousness for the unrighteous. It offers right standing for the guilty. And it offers overflowing grace for spiritual corpses. This is what Ray Stedman refers to as the avalanche of grace. Here's my question. Has the avalanche of grace come crashing into your life? I remember I was on a hike on Mount Rainier. I think I was in high school and I saw my first avalanche and I'll never forget the, the feeling I had 
that avalanche started, and we were at a, a, a safe distance, and we just watched it. There is no one who could stop that avalanche. Once an avalanche gets started, it's going to capture everything in its path. That's how God's grace is. Have you been captured by this avalanche of grace? You see, when the grace of God comes crashing into your life, everything begins to make sense. Now, mind you, problems don't evaporate. Pain doesn't go away. But now that you have been captured in this avalanche of grace, you live with a new sense of, of purpose. It's renewed purpose. It's renewed hope. Your, your, your sins have been forgiven. Which sins? Past sins, present sins, and every future sin that you will ever commit. You reign in grace. You reign now. And as you live with that completed sense of purpose, what happens? All those puzzle pieces that I could never put together on my own, what happens? They become this beautiful, beautiful portrait. You see, that's the puzzle I will never, ever, ever complete. And this puzzle, you will never complete on your own either. Even if you're not colorblind. You need the Holy Spirit to put all those pieces together and it comes as a result of submitting to Jesus and embracing his gospel. Now there are, we are in the midst of racial tension, let me put it that way. I said to my wife a few days ago, I never would have thought that I would have a growing list of books on my shelf about racial relations. It's just, it just kind of came out of nowhere. There is a man who was a slave trader. And he was a wicked man. He was a sinful man. He was an unrighteous man. But one day, he got blown away by the avalanche of grace. And here is his response. He said this. This man who mistreated and abused African people who were innocent. He said this after he got captured by the avalanche of grace. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies called us by grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood. He presents our souls to God. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and joint to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. The man who wrote these words is a man you all know very well. His name is John Newton, and he's the man who authored the most popular hymn that's ever been written in all of human history, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Has the avalanche of grace come crashing into your world? Perhaps today is the day of salvation for some of you, and for those of you who are following Jesus, may I urge you to, to keep digging deeper 
and growing stronger all the way to the finish line. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that those of us who are in Christ, that we reign in grace. Thank you that we don't live in some kind of a spiritual halfway house, that we can enjoy the the wonders of salvation right now. And yes, we still live in a sinful world, and yes, we still commit sin, but we thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that we have been rescued from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, and what we look forward to the most in heaven is that we will no longer be burdened by sin's presence any longer, and we will reign with our Savior for all eternity. Lord, for those who are not yet Christians, may today be the day of salvation. I pray that someone has been wounded by the law, that they realize that they have broken your holy law and that the only response is profound guilt. And with that guilt at a, at a fevered pitch, may they realize this morning that the grace is available through the Lord Jesus Christ. May someone turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they would have righteousness, so that they would have right standing so that they would receive forgiveness, so that they would have abounding grace, and they would no longer be a spiritual slave, they would no longer be a spiritual corpse, rather that they would reign in grace. And all God's people said, amen.